we gave the analogy that when you dive down into these on, on a kind of psychedelic journey, you dive down to the bottom of the sea and you find that place at the bottom where there might be loads of beautiful fish and lovely colours and all sorts of nice things. But the waters at the bottom can be quite murky. And of course, people don't always go to these places, but I think it's better pre to prepare people that they might go there rather than just saying, oh, yeah, it's going to be lovely and pretty and you're going to feel all full of joy. I mean, sometimes, yes, but more often people go to a kind of murkier place where they are feeling repressed feelings, traumatic feelings, things that have been pushed down to the very bottom of the city and, and not felt and that they need to be felt in order to be processed. everybody and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. So today we have the interesting topic of how psychedelic compounds are now being used in psychotherapy to look into. Now with promising results in clinical trials from Imperial College around the mid-2010s, a flourish of trials at other medical schools across the world has seen a renaissance of the psychedelic movement for treating particularly depression and PTSD that was started by transpersonal psychologists like Stangroff in the 1960s before then being banned. Now, along with this renaissance has come interest from pharmaceutical companies, from psychonauts, from psychotherapists, and from members of the general public suffering particularly from treatment-resistant conditions. Now, with all this activity, there is confusion about what the results from the study actually show, how the treatment should be done safely, ethically, and with lasting results, and who to be contacting if you want to try this out. So I thought it was an important time to speak about these matters on the show for anyone interested in getting a really sort of data-led picture of this very fast-evolving situation among all of the noise out there on the internet. Now, fortunately for us, my guest today is a clinical psychologist who's been at the center of this field since the beginning of the Renaissance, and not just as a researcher, but as a hands-on psychologist in the therapy room with the subjects at all stages of the process. She is, of course, Dr. Rosalind Watts. Now, Dr. Watts's work as the clinical lead for Imperial College London psilocybin trials and her subsequent role as the clinical director at the Synthesis Institute have made her one of the most prominent voices and minds in this field of psychedelic research She's been named one of the 50 most influential people in psychedelics, but what really sets her apart is her focus on integration, harm reduction, and inclusion in the psychedelic space. So apart from treating, she also builds the tools and the structures to foster uh, the connectedness uh, after psychedelic experiences, finding inspirations directly from nature. And the most recent of these is the integration community that she's created, the ACER Integration which we'll be touching on today. Now, we do have a previous show on testing the use of psychedelics for treating depression with one of Rosalind's close collaborators, psychologist Ashley Murphy-Biner, which focuses on the results of the first two psilocybin imperial uh, college studies. If anyone wants to get deeper into those results, 
but I've always wanted to speak to Rosalind um, about her really unique take on treatment and integration as just so many therapists are adopting her protocol. So without further ado, let's go. Dr. Rosalind Watts, welcome to Chasing Consciousness. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's been a long time in the coming and I'm so, so grateful. I always love to start, Ros, by asking my guests about their earliest conscious reflections about life, about the world, usually when they were sort of heading into adolescence, but sometimes much earlier. Can you remember any particular thoughts that were just rattling around in your head back then that may have influenced where you ended up going? Hmm. Interesting question. I think... I think I remember a particular moment in my adolescence where I realized that the culture and society I was growing up in was lacking community. So I guess the water you swim in is just what you know. So I grew up in a small town going to a single sex school and I wasn't a member of any you know we we weren't a religious family so I didn't go to church I wasn't really a member of any kind of cultural movements my mum was very busy working professional kind of you know I would say that in my early teens I was interested in going to the shopping center tv kind those those kind of things were what you know preoccupied me and my friends and then I had this glimmer, this 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 glimpse into what it means to be part of a tribe and what to be, it means to be part of a connected community. And that was from my experience of going clubbing. So when I was quite young still, I just through one of those funny circumstances of life, I my one of my early boyfriends was very interested in dance music. And so he kind of extracted me from my little town and my private school world and introduced me to these huge clubs. And I remember the very first time I walked into the first one, it was called Passion. And it was in the heyday of an amazing movement of dance. And I remember walking through the doors and just seeing these, it was like a rainbow of colors, people everywhere in amazing costumes smiling faces incredibly friendly and welcoming and I remember just feeling it was like kind of Alice in Wonderland but being but a friendly benign Alice in Wonderland where I was kind of plucked and just brought into the heart of this mass of people all dancing and that for sure changed the trajectory of my life although I didn't realize it for another ooh, for a good kind of 10 or 15 years I it was latent and then the seed through the soil a decade later right it's funny isn't it i was very much part of that movement we probably shared a dance floor as well and there was just something about that sense of belonging and this sense of of love which you just sort of don't get in that kind of you know as you say everybody on their own work train everybody just going to school going to the shops you just didn't get that until then that was very very impressive for me as well mm. now Ross, let's get into the main topic for today um, the main focus for today's discussion is to help those uh, who are listening who may have depression or anxiety or PTSD 
um, or also psychotherapists interested in this new field, this re-emerging field, who are curious about this tool in psychotherapeutics, and just to help them imagine what it might actually look like in practice, should they one day be able to get involved in this treatment. So as the methodology is gaining traction with the medical authorities, trials are proving successful, uh, laws are even being changed in some countries, which we're going to get into into a bit. And many more people out there are now considering this, particularly if they're not getting results with the traditional treatments. Now, let's start with the process itself, which is, I think, why you are such a legend in the field. Talk us through the preparation with the client, the therapeutic setting, you know, the order of things, and, and as per the system that you developed with your colleagues during the Imperial College study, what's, what's the process? So the first step is about screening. So one thing we're very clear about now is that psychedelic therapy won't be for everybody. And we're having, we're getting a bit clearer about who it might be beneficial for and who it's unlikely to help. And it's still very early days in this. So we're just approximating and guessing rather than having a big evidence base. But in our trials, we, um, we we had conversations with people, we looked at their medical history, and we spent quite a long, long time talking to them to establish whether they had certain things in their medical history, like history of psychosis or mania. And if people did have that, or, or also bipolar disorder, we, we didn't include them in the study. And there are some people with bipolar disorder who are um, campaigning for the use of psychedelic therapy. And I for sure have met many people that have bipolar disorder that it has helped, but we were, I guess, just erring on the side of caution. So we we screened out bipolar, um, psychosis, mania. And we also, over the, the time we were doing this work, started to really see that there was a really important factor around the ability of somebody to form a trusting relationship quite quickly that was important because psychedelic therapy is all about trust. And if you don't trust the people that are giving you the, the whatever it is in whatever form, it can be a very difficult and unhelpful experience. So we, we needed to establish whether people felt that they could come into a container. We don't often have that long to build that trust and that you might expose parts of yourself, vulnerable parts, childlike parts. You might relive experiences of traumatic things that happened in your childhood in the room. So in order to be that vulnerable, there needs to be a certain readiness to say to the people that will guide you, whether it's on a retreat or in a trial or whatever setting, I'm ready to show you the parts of myself that I normally want to hide and I will allow you to support me if that happens. And I will stay open to whatever I'm shown. And some people aren't ready for that yet. Some people, you know, they're, they're not ready. And, and we had participants that weren't yet ready. And so um, we learned to really establish in conversation whether people felt that they, we, we gave them a clear idea of what it could be like and said, you know, can you imagine yourself going through this and being able to make use of it? And the other thing we really made sure people understood was that it is not like other psychiatric um, pharmacological treatments where you might take a pill and it does something to you. It's an amplifier. It's a catalyst, which I'll explain more about in a moment. But it's really like it can open a door. But in order to change your life and change the way you feel about your life and yourself, 
there's so much work that needs to be done. The psychedelic experience is the beginning, not the end. So we made sure that people understood that and that they were in a place in their lives where they were ready to do the work and that they were supported enough to do that work. So that's sometimes hard if people are feeling really desperate for something to change, but things are feeling quite fragmented in their lives. Sometimes you have to say, no, we need to see a little bit more stability first, you know, like having the support of a therapist, for example, before it feels safe to, to do this with you. So that's the first stage screening, which is really important. And then the next stage is the preparation. And we would have contact with people between the screening and the preparation. So we'd have a few phone calls with people just to start to really build that relationship as much as possible. Although that's not always going to be the way it's done because the more time contact you have, the more it costs. So I would say the version we did was quite high on the therapeutic support and it may not survive as the models get kind of, you know, developed in a commercial way. But we would then, they would come into the clinic and the first part of their preparation would be that we would sit and have a meal together. And that was too, because people often felt very nervous and it was important that they met the two guides. It was always two people that would be in the session with them. So the two guides were in the room. We had a beautiful room that had been converted from a kind of very bare clinic to a room with pictures of trees and glowing salt lamps and very low lighting and pleasant environment. They would come in, we'd have music playing. Music is the backbone of all of it. Prep, session, integration. There's music all the way through because it helps people. And also lovely smells. We'd have lovely essential oils burning so that all pe people's senses could help them go into that state of relaxation. Like this is not a frightening ordeal in a kind of psychiatrist's office. This is a, this is an experience of, um, surrender and being able to let go so people would come in they'd smell the lovely smells hear the music we'd share a meal together how interesting to share a meal together because breaking bread together is just the basis of 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 a, a sort of symbol of trust and sharing and community isn't it i wonder i i, I what a brilliant idea oh thank you yes i mean it was um you know, so often as you know, I trained as a clinical psychologist and I would never have been allowed to share a meal with my patients. And there was something about that power dynamic that just always really frustrated me because I wanted to be able to break bread with people and be human and to to connect, to really connect. And as so Jung said, it's actually quite important to remember that the therapist is part of that process they themselves come with their own baggage with their own point of view and those two people need to be seen in connection in the process not as uh, as as one observing the other absolutely and this idea that one of you is more um highly evolved or superior or knows more is just such nonsense i mean it, it really is like years into the like you know the world like being clinical psychologist and just observing my colleagues and just you know the idea that the person with the clipboard is more functioning than the person on the other side of the table just is not is not the case many people go into healing professions because of our own childhood trauma so and we are it's a reciprocal process that through helping someone else we help ourselves too so i think there is something about coming into a more equal relation, equal reciprocal relationship that's mutually healing for both people because one person is able to give, the other is to receive, but in the giving, 
up to another, you're also receiving huge amounts of a sense of purpose and a sense of having something to offer. So it's it's very reciprocal. So we would we'd sit and have a meal together. And in that meal, we would just talk as human beings, not so much about what was happening, but just, you know, we wouldn't self-disclose massive amounts or talk about, you know, this terrible thing that happened last night, or, you know, we we, we were we were there to hold space for them, but we also came to the space as a human being rather than a professional, I would say. And, and we also tried to show that between the two guides, there was a sense of kind of deep trust and connection. We were kind of like a family in the team and we, we brought in this sense of, you know, you can trust us. We know each other very well. We work together very well as a team and you know that there is a kind of bedrock of good feeling in this room that you can just rest into in a way like that kind of good good parenting feeling of kind of, you know, having a kind of um, healthy parental couple that are there to say, we've got you, you can let go and you can feel because we're holding the container. And the so, fact that there's two guides is significant, isn't it? Because there needs to be a witness to for, for ethical reasons. Absolutely. Although this is now being eroded because of the commercial aspect of this therapy, which is a real shame because I think for safety, it needs to be there. But also um, it's a lot to guide a six hour session on your own. And it's also it's very tiring. You need to go to the toilet, you know, just something basic like that. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you end up not drinking any water because you can't. So you end up becoming really feeling quite I mean, at the end of at the end of sessions where you're, where the, I mean, even at the end of a session when there's two of you, at the end of the day, you've often got a bit of a headache. Your body doesn't feel good. You've been sitting in the same chair for like six or eight hours, not drinking water because you don't want to go to the toilet, not having a meal, nibbling nuts. I mean, it's it's a lot to put your body through. It really is. And having two of you there helps hugely. And also for the for the participant, they just have that feeling of, I mean, maybe it's a luxury but they're having this profound experience and having it witnessed by by two people somehow makes it feel more more special it's more unusual to have to have a two people there with both of their reflections and both of their witnessing it feels more of a ceremony when there's a group of you rather than a kind of dyad where there's the two i think it's also healthier for the dynamics in a sense because i think with one person and you know, one guide. Yeah, to me, this work, it needs to be done in groups and a group of three with two guides and one person is kind of like the minimum sized group. But if it just becomes one-on-one, I can just see so many issues with that really. But yeah. Might be able to come back to that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, So then, so we would have the meal and then in the afternoon, we would start off with quite a long conversation with them around who they are we would already know that a bit from the screening but we would ask about how things are going how life is at the moment their relationships their thoughts about the world what they care about what they would like their life to be like if something shifted for them and then we would talk a lot more about the depression and what the depression was feeling like and then we'd have a little break and then we would do a guided imagery journey with them and this was something I developed because I we we I just kind of knew that we needed it like in the first trial we didn't have it and 
there was something I think a bit missing and the the point of this journey so it's obviously done before psychedelics are administered it's done with kind of normal state of consciousness but it's a practice run for a psychedelic experience so we would people would be lying on the bed it was a kind of hospital bed and we would play music and read a script all about being on a beach and a boat coming up getting on the boat the boat taking them out to the deep sea and then having this choice about going on a pearl dive and if they chose to then they were going to imagine that they were climbing down the ladder and diving down and we asked them to imagine that there were lots of waves kind of splashing against them and those waves represent depression stresses of modern life repetitive stresses things that you're just constantly battling against to try and stay afloat i mean modern life can be like treading water in the face of wave after wave after wave and you can't see your life you can't see very far because you all you can see is the next wave and the next wave and depression makes that much worse but but we said okay the waves are coming but you're going to dive down beneath the surface of those waves right down to the bottom of the sea and as you dive down, you're diving down from your head into your body. So we'd ask them to imagine a kind of body scan sweeping from their tips of their fingers, surging down to the tips of their toes and really feeling into that space inside their body and feeling into where there were any tensions or feelings of tightness. And we we gave the analogy that when you dive down into these, on, on a kind of psychedelic journey, you dive down to the bottom of the sea and you find that place at the bottom where there might be loads of beautiful fish and lovely colors and all sorts of nice things but the waters at the bottom can be quite murky and of course people don't always go to these places but I think it's better to prepare people that they might go there rather than just saying oh yeah it's going to be lovely and pretty and you're going to feel all full of joy I mean sometimes yes but more often people go to a kind of murkier place where they are feeling repressed feelings, traumatic feelings, things that have been pushed down to the very bottom of the city and and not felt and that they need to be felt in order to be processed. So the analogy we give is imagine down at the bottom of the sea, there are spiky oyster shells and they're very spiky and off-putting you do not want to go near them. You just want to swim away. But the most important direction for this work is swim towards it, say yes to it, and open it up. And there's the spiky outer layer, which is kind of the fear, the fact that it's very off-putting and scary. And we ask people to open the shell and say, when you open the oyster shell, inside there's the kind of slimy stuff which is the oyster which is a a metaphor for all the shame and the disgust and the discomfort that people often feel when they are opening up those traumatic memories and so we say you know stay with it stay with the slime stay with the icky feelings because if you stay there long enough you can find the pearl and the pearl is the metaphor for the the lesson in all of this pain because in those hidden places, the key to our flourishing and forward movement and developing as people and finding healing and finding meaning is all there in those painful places. The the learning that we get from when we really stay 
with those places. So they would find the pearl. And what we asked them to imagine in their bodies, kind of where do you feel tightness? Where do you feel something stuck? And they would kind of say, and they talk to us as they were doing it. They'd say, you know, um, I feel a tightness in my chest or I feel a knot in my stomach or, you know, my throat feels constricted. Often it would be those places, often the heart too, like a pain in the heart. And we'd say, okay, imagine that's a spiky oyster and breathe into that place. So breathe into that stuckness. And instead of trying to make it smaller and go away, make it bigger, allow it, let that feeling open up, like you're opening up that oyster inside yourself and let that place become a place of learning, stay with the feeling. So they'd kind of talk us through it. And it's kind of a practice for in a psychedelic experience, you want them to tell you a little bit about what they're experiencing sometimes, because sometimes they need a bit of guidance. So just practicing that kind of communication. So they were still in the experience, but also telling us what was going on just enough that we could support them through it. And they would, they would, you know, they would stay with the feeling and they would find the pearl. What does this feeling in my stomach tell me? And it was amazing to me to see how many people who had never done meditation or any kind of embodied work being able to feel into a place in their body and say, this feeling of sickness is about X, Y, Z. They knew, they, 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 could, they could tell, often for the first time, because this is not a kind of common exercise that we do in mental health. And... And then we would say, okay, when you find your pearl, imagine that you swim up to the surface of the sea and then you just float there in the sun, the setting sun, and you can look around and have that feeling of having learned something. And then the next stage is, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean for my life, this learning? What does it mean for the trip that I'm going to have tomorrow? And how can I honor this learning with an action or an intention? And so that experience would help them develop a clear intention for the next day. So often people's intentions going in are like, you know, because you always talk about, you know, what, why are you doing this? And often people would say, because I want to be happy or because I want my life to change or because I want to have a mystical experience and I want to see, you know, those kind of things. I want my brain to be reset. And then after they've done this pearl dive, the intention is something around, I want to be able to listen to my pain. I want to be able to stay with my body. I want to be able to trust that I will be able to, that there will be meaning, even if it's difficult. So the, the intentions changed from, I want all the, you know, wonderful things to, I just want to be able to stay with myself you know and to be so with that, the shame which is such a big one the slime is such a big one that often is left out isn't it the 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 byproduct the sort of um the thing that we end up carrying around as well as the trauma is the shame that somehow we've we've done something wrong and that is the, one of the hardest things to be with yes. so that then takes you into the next stage which is the session itself mm-hmm. yes so the next day, so then they'd go and have a sleep and relax as much as they could. The next day would be the session itself. They'd come in in the morning and we would kind of 
pretty much go straight in, not too much time to sit around and get nervous because it's hugely nerve wracking for people and for the guides as well. Every morning, every time we would be really nervous about what might happen because it's still quite uncharted territory and we still don't really know where people are going to go. And sometimes it's really tough. So they would come in, lie down on the bed and we'd have a particular playlist that was was playing in the background lots of music that's quite kind of reassuring and supportive but also has space for sadness and kind of bittersweet feelings to emerge as well and then the two guides would sit on either side of the bed we'd pass a bowl beautiful wooden bowl with the psilocybin capsules in hand it to them and say you know we're here this is a music meditation consider that the main purpose focus on the music and your feelings and don't worry too much about what the the psilocybin is doing or not doing just let yourself float with the music and that would begin six hours of of yeah of very many different things for different people and then we would sit there and try and be non-directive and try and be non-intrusive and really just holding the space. And there are different models for psychedelic therapy where people are more directive, but our model was was not. We were we were kind of sat back, but then we had arranged with people beforehand that if they wanted us to hold their hand, they could kind of move their hand because it's sometimes hard to talk, and we would move towards them and hold their hand. And if we'd got it wrong then we said, just move your hand away because we might have misinterpreted your hand signal. So we're going to hold your hand in case that's what you want. And if you don't want it, then just flick us away. I mean, a lot of it was around helping people understand not to worry about being rude because often people were like worried that we were bored or that they weren't including us enough. Or, you know, sometimes people would lie there for hours needing to go to the toilet, but kind of not wanting to say. So it was really... A lot of the work was really kind of saying, we want to take care of you. We're here to take care of you. People aren't used to being taken care of in our culture. And so people are used to healthcare provision being formal and very time limited and very boundaried. So people aren't used to that kind of, yeah, that kind of way of being. Is the sense deprivation important here? Because you mentioned lying down, you mentioned eye shades. Is that a necessary part? The sense deprivation is that something that you encourage? Is that do you do you see better results in that sense? I think so. I think um, having there's something about kind of soft candlelight that's quite soothing, and also means that if people you don't want people having their eyes open and looking around because that can be quite because your perceptions are altered so much that if you're if you have your eyes open and you're looking around the room then you can get quite kind of freaked out by the things that you see and you're not going on your own inner journey so we really encourage people to have their eyes closed but sometimes people it would get a bit too much and they need to open them and maybe just look down at the floor or focus on the ceiling or something so you need it to be quite dark so that if they do that, they don't get overwhelmed by bright lights and, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's nice to be in near darkness. And, yeah, and I think having 
having the focus on the music, having all the other senses kind of dulled down and really having the music be the main focus, I think works quite well. And did you find participants wanting to choose some of their own music or was that rare? So we said to everyone, you know, you can put a few of your own songs in the playlist. So we made a Spotify playlist template and then we made a different playlist for every person where we added in a few of their songs at the very end when they'd come back to their pretty much back to to land. And it's really nice for them to listen to those songs when they're a little bit altered, but still not completely out there, because otherwise it's music with words is very strange when you're in a deep psychedelic journey. Um, so we use music without words or, or music with words in another language. But if it's words in your own language, it can take you on all sorts of weird mental loops. And it, it, it's engaging the thinking part of your brain when really you need that to be offline as much as possible and just to be with your feelings. So. So this yeah. lasts about six hours, you're saying, more or less, depending on the, the the dosage. Yes, approximately six hours. And yeah, and it was the 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 strength of it varied completely. So 25 milligrams of synthetic psilocybin was so variable in what it did. And we were it was a, a randomized control trial. So half the group were on a placebo dose and half were on a high dose. Placebo dose was one milligram of psilocybin. Quite a lot of the people on the one milligram had really powerful experiences because it's like a microdose and having the the support and the care and the music and the, you know, for some people it was a really moving trip. And for some people on the 25 milligrams who were struggling to let go and to really surrender, felt like they didn't feel, they didn't really feel anything. So sometimes people thought they were on high dose when it was low dose and the other way around was interesting but i mean not you know not all the time but much more than you would think mm. and it's interesting as well in psychedelic retreats there will quite often be one person in a room who's had the same amount of mushrooms ayahuasca whatever as other people and just won't feel anything with no explanation why and that same person might have a strong trip the next you know the next day but sometimes it just yeah happens that way and that brings us to the last stage, which is the next day. Yes. So the integration part is hugely important. And in trials, we were very limited in how much we could give. So the next day they would come back for their first integration session. And that would be, they would sit with the two therapists, we'd put the music on that they had the day before, and we would just say, you know, tell us. Tell us all about it, because we were there, but we don't know where you went, really. And they would talk us through what it meant, the symbols, the the, the thoughts, the, the memories they revisited or, you know. And we would sit there and just listen. And then that's the beginning of a process where they would then have weekly Zoom calls with us, but just for three weeks, where we would say, you know, how is essentially what you need to distill is from all of this content, all of these signs, symbols, thoughts, reflections, insights, light bulb moments, moments of huge emotion, spiritual experience, all of the stuff that people can see. We know that thinking about the pearls that people get from those oysters, those pearls most of the time afterwards get put in a drawer that gets shut and they never see the light of day and they don't change anything. So the analogy I use, it's like, how can you turn that pearl into a pearl seed that you then go and plant and say, okay, I'm going to grow a 
pearl tree from this and I'm going to water it and feed it and grow it and let it take root and let it take root to other pearl trees of other people that have been through this experience. And what do I want the branches to grow of that? You know, what do I want this experience to turn into? So I think integration needs to be this process of nourishing and nurturing a few insights so that they actually change your life. Because otherwise, it doesn't matter how wonderful the experience, a few months later, people were back in the same position they were beforehand. And that happened most of the time. That three, three months or six months later, the depression was back and life hadn't changed. And that was that was the that was the most common outcome, I would say, that you know, six months later in the in the second trial at least, um, maybe slightly longer than six months later, but yeah, a, a year later, people were back in, you know, unchanged situations. Well, and I think we can all identify with that, whether we're suffering from depression or not, we have these light bulb moments and then we very quickly forget and and, and life throws us another curveball to remind us at some point, doesn't it? But yes. but just quickly there, presumably that information helped you to design an integration rhythm where yeah. you're like, well, let's see them again at three months, let's see them again at six months, just to try and sort of maybe prolong that. It, it, how many integration sessions do you do? And Sadly, again, we have to face how many of these realistically are going to be part of any sort of NHS program, any sort of uh, public health system program as this becomes more mainstream. Yeah, so that that's everything I focus on now because I realized that in the clinical trials, we were completely limited to how many sessions we could offer. So I was kind of trying to maximize that. But there's a lot of pushback because as soon as you're doing anything that looks like therapy or more long term, um, it looks like it's a different intervention to the actual psychedelic. So psychedelic clinical trials don't want to muddy the waters by offering two interventions because then the quality of the therapist makes a difference and the quality of the model and all those things. So they just do it as like, you come in, you have your experience and you go. And because that's what they're testing. And then also the other challenge with when it gets introduced into our healthcare systems, it's the integration time that is expensive because having a therapist doing regular follow-up meetings is is that it becomes really costly. So realizing that there was going to be no provision and realizing that basically of the two trials I worked on, I was being emailed loads by people from both trials saying, help, you gave us this experience. It was great. I don't know anyone else that's done it. My GP thinks I'm mad. My wife thinks I'm mad. My depression's coming back. I've had some funny spiritual experiences. I need support. Like there's nothing in my there's nothing in our society that can help me. I've tried this, I've tried that, there's nothing. And so because those emails were so common and because I was also running a community integration group where it wasn't for people in trials specifically, but just people who were going to retreats and you know, people would come and have had really intense experiences with things like 5-MeO-DMT, which is a very strong psychedelic, or ayahuasca and, and, and LSD, a festival, and they would come in saying, we really need help because we had a powerful experience and we need support and there's nothing available. So because of those two things, like the community group and also people from the trials really struggling, I realized that we need something in the community, a, a, a strong container in the community so that people from retreats, from trials, anywhere can come and be connected to each other. So that's my work now. I've started a, it's it's online, so it can be accessible to anyone anywhere. And it's a 12 month, because you asked about timelines. 
it's a whole year of uh, an integration process that we go, go on together with various different elements. And the idea is that when people have been through the 12 months, they can then hold, because part of it is sharing circles, small group sharing circles. When people have been through the 12 months, they can offer those sharing circles for new people. So it's a kind of, yeah, because, because we need to grow and there's so many people that need it, but also because they're experts. You know, once you've been through a psychedelic experience and you've been through 12 months of integration, you are in a brilliant place to help somebody else who is suffering with depression and feeling hopeless. You're in a brilliant position to say, hey, I also have depression. I also have been through this experience and have done the work and I've changed my life. I'm here to support you to do the same thing. And being on the same level in some sense, rather than, as you said, this authority figure of the therapist. But just to come back, Rosalind, because we'll definitely be linking this in the show notes, um, listeners, so you can go off and find one of these. If you need one of these sessions, it could be from, just as you said, an experience at a festival or whatever. But, you know, the, the integration is crucial in all of these situations. But presumably, the therapists who had been trying to treat their depression in the past, they were still in contact with was there a process when they signed up for these trials of staying in communication with the therapist in such a way that they were aware that there may be a need for an extra couple of appointments based on some of these experiences? Or was that hard to manage? Oh, it was one of the saddest things. It actually makes me quite emotional thinking about it. I think one of the things that is really sad as someone that's like really, you know, I I, I was trained in the National Health Service in the UK. I'm, you know, real believer in national healthcare systems that we, you know, support healthcare for everybody, you know, free healthcare for everybody. Our healthcare systems are so eroded in the UK. There is, it's, it's on its knees. There's basically nothing there. So essentially what we found was we did need to have people's GP or psychiatrist kind of being the referral point, but pretty much without, maybe with the exception of a couple these healthcare professionals were so overwhelmed with people that were suicidal or going through acute crises. They'd have these huge caseloads that if there was someone who was kind of okay and being managed by a trial, they were like, okay, great, you've got it. And when we tried to engage with them and say, you know, can you give your, we needed permission from the GPs. We had to chase them for like weeks and weeks and weeks because they were so busy. They couldn't even sign the form. And then when we were handing people back to their healthcare professionals, the idea that anyone would have been able to get any support from the NHS was preposterous. If we'd said this person had quite a challenging experience, it brought up some experiences of childhood abuse, which is a common thing that gets unearthed. Um, they really need some support. There would not have been anything available because really the cutoff with services at the moment is unless you're in a kind of acute crisis, the waiting lists are extremely long for any kind of talking therapy. And it, yeah state of affairs isn't it? terrible state of affairs yeah so there, there was no realistic support so it's it's it, it's a bit of a catch-22 because you don't want to engage someone in this intense process unless they have support the support isn't available you have to pay for it and even private therapists are so overwhelmed with with demand at the moment that it's very difficult to find any private therapists that have any space but that makes perfect space for your uh, ACR community approach yes. where you're looking for these community-based groups that can be self 
um, seeded and they can be rolled out in the local area where it's convenient for people to find that kind of community support. And again, there's another point here about the fact that the psychedelic approach is just a short intervention. Mm. So you're not taking that medication on a daily basis. It does mean that you do need to continue that integration at three months, six months, 12 months stages in order to make sure that the seed lasts. But if we can then get community groups to be helping take some of that weight off uh, the mental health system, then we've got a, a less intervention at a, at a pharmacological level and we've got less need for intervention from, uh, from, from taxpayer aid health professionals. What an interesting solution you've come up with. Now, Ros, I want to move on. Um, before we get into your results and and the results of these studies, we did speak, uh, as I mentioned, with Ashley Murphy um, mm. Biner on this. So do go back, uh, listeners, if you're wanting to hear more about the actual data from those two studies, those important imperial studies that really kicked off this worldwide excitement. Um, we do have a devoted uh, episode on that. So don't worry if we're not giving you enough of the actual data from those studies. But I just wanted to take a moment to mention that if I've understood correctly, Ros, your approach was quite inspired by nature and by indigenous cultures, right? And and I know that you think that the ritual-based part, you mentioned the word ritual before and ceremony, is really important. For example, you mentioned your special bowl that you give yeah. the psilocybin to the participants. Using this metaphor of the Japanese bowl, maybe you could introduce the indigenous ceremonial angle on this type of treatment. Yes. So I think, and it's interesting because you mentioned as well about the results of the trials and, you know, I'm, you know, obviously, you know, huge believer in in science, but one of the things I've realized through the process of working in psychedelic therapy is that the the results of the scientific body of work don't take into account all of the different factors. So they kind of present as if like, giving people this drug produces this change in depression scores. And what they don't talk about in what papers often don't really aren't allowed to talk about so much is the therapeutic agents. What is making the change? If you give psilocybin and it's not in a ritualized container and it doesn't have this aspect of kind of sacred ceremony, it, it, it doesn't, it, it tends to not really work. I mean, for someone whose mental health is 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 fine and they want to kind of take it on their own and they you know want to go into a forest it would probably still have some you know it you may not need to have the kind of sacred component the ritual component but when we're using it for healing and we need people to feel trust and safety it's the the age old practices that we have borrowed from indigenous traditions that are important so vision quests more or less well, so I mean, so the the container the container for psilocybin specifically is adapted from the Mazatec tradition. So the Mazatec um, tradition is where Mazatec healers were the first to use mushrooms as an agent of healing, and well, not necessarily the first, but they were the kind of it's the the main tradition and it's still existing today. And what I really should say is it's the tradition that we borrowed from in the West. So there are other indigenous mushroom-using traditions, but it was the Mexican Mazatec tradition that we got it from. So the way it happened was there was a, a American banker 
and his wife, who was a mushroom expert and doctor, interested in mushrooms, went to Mexico to find a a mushroom experience. There was a healer called Maria Sabina, who was a shaman, Mazatec healer. She showed them how it was used. And the guy then sold, sold the story to Life magazine against her wishes. And it was from that that we kind of in the West were like, oh, you know, they were all the pictures of how the mushrooms were used. And and we actually still use a lot of the traditions from the Mazatec, the Mazatec ceremony now. Why so didn't like, she want that out of interest, Rose? Was she worried about cultural appropriation and this being sort of taken out of context and manipulated? She was she was worried about something sacred being kind of desecrated. So, and that's exactly what happened because lots of people started going to her village and kind of disrupting it and you know naked long head it was kind of in the 60s so like lots of naked people tripping out on the streets her community disowned her I think her house got burned down and she died penniless and escaped you know kind of um excommunicated because of the the destruction of the the community based on it becoming kind of taken over by the west so this is the kind of the often the impact of when when the West, you know, infiltrates indigenous groups, we see this kind of destruction of sacred ways because we don't really understand them because we want to extract the thing that's going to help us. And it's this kind of extractivist culture rather than understanding the interlinking. Objective-led rather than process-led. Completely, completely. So I think, yeah, rather than people coming and patiently observing and asking if they could kind of sit in ceremony, it was kind of like people coming and just taking the mushrooms, you know, and and uh, yeah. So we use a lot of elements of, of ritual. And the most important thing I think is, is, is creating a sense that you are, you are walking out of your usual world that is dominated by the bright lights of the way we do things in the West, you know, that, you know, you're kind of in a hospital and it's the bright lights and it's the kind of the busy, the busyness, the medical model, the people in the white coats, which obviously has many, many huge benefits, but there's also a particular kind of consciousness that goes with that, which is around hierarchy. Some people being the experts, some people being the patients, fast paced and all about like pursuit of knowledge and linear pursuit of knowledge in this kind of hierarchical structure. And then they walk into this room where the lights are low and it's your, it's like the shape of a circle rather than a tri, you know, the kind of pyramid of a, of a hierarchy. You're, you're sitting in ceremony together. You're share, you're breaking bread together. You are bringing them into a world where we say, you know, this just showing them rather than saying, but just showing them that it's about sharing. It's about gentleness. It's about going slowly, patience and sacred respect and reverence the the word is reverence for them as a person and that we don't have any knowledge of what they should do or where they're going to go we're not the experts but we are sitting in a sense of kind of fellowship communitas is the word that's often often used for this you know that you get this experience of communitas in a ritual and it's it's really this sense of connection to more than just the context of your own contents of your own ego mind you know you you feel some kind of expansion so majority of people would think that a ritual or ceremonial tradition would need to be connected to some kind of deity or entity um i don't 
hear that in the way you're talking about this. In the sense, it's almost as if the trust of the process itself, the body itself, the mind itself, is what you're ceremonially, ceremonially abandoning yourself to. Help me out here, Roz. What, how yeah. do we talk about ceremony and ritual without people thinking about gods and entities? So the room was surrounded in screens with pictures of woodland trees with sun streaming through. So for me, what psychedelics have taught me about the sacred, which is a lot because I was extremely atheist and, you know, very much devoted to kind of science and, you know, materialistic ways of knowing. I'm going to be asking you about that that first experience (laughs) in just a second. I can't wait. But I think what, what psychedelic experiences taught me, and this isn't just my own experience, this is primarily through observing the processes of other people who came in as materialist atheists and discovered something. The the often repeated revelation is, oh, I am nature. So it's like, you know, people would say things like, you know, I used to think of nature as like a thing that I could look at, like TV or a painting, but now I know that I am nature. So it's this, the idea that runs at the heart of all indigenous belief systems all over the world, all different indigenous um, wisdom really comes back to the same idea that humans are part of a living web of life. It's Gaia theory. We are all interconnected. We are not separate from life. We are part of that web, even though we dominate it at the moment. But when people realized in their psychedelic experiences, and they realized it in different ways through different revelations, but it wasn't just in the experience itself. It was the day after walking in nature and going, Oh my God, the trees, the leaves, the flowers, the bird song. It was like nature just came completely alive for people. And most of the nature in most of the integration that pe- we recommended people did was in nature. And that's where they went from feeling stuck in their own ego minds, battling the waves of depression to sitting in a park or a woodland and going, I mean, you can probably relate to this. You know, most people that have had a psychedelic experience will will be able to relate to the majesty of nature that can be uncovered in the, the experience or afterwards. So when talking about like deities for the experiences, I would say, you know, psilocybin is taken from mushrooms. Mushrooms are, you know, grow in the ground. And there is something about the experience of a psychedelic experience that is about surrendering to something bigger than yourself and feeling like you are coming out of your kind of the arrogance of the human being and just saying mushrooms do do what you will and and in that way we are able to relax our egos which is what separates us from nature and that's obviously what psychedelics are working on they're working on relaxing the ego mind in the brain and coming back to a place in the web so if if there's a deity it's the web of life and and let's come back a moment to sort of vulnerability and shame because that was there in your model it, it makes me think of Rumi. you know the the cracks are where the light comes in your cracked japanese bowl yes um, is there anything in indigenous culture that talks about something like Rumi, what Rumi's talking about that this idea of a sacred wound this idea that our pains and our wounds are in fact the opportunity for learning you mentioned with the pearl is there any of that coming from that ritual ceremonial uh, indigenous background yes i think um 
I think it's probably humans in small groups have had places to process and be with the range of experience that comes, the range of emotion that comes from being human. So the one, you know, common denominator of being human is that you experience loss and trauma and suffering. I mean, we, we all, we, we, this, we all do, we lose people. Um, death is, is something that is an inescapable part of humanity, of hu- being a human. So I think that, and, and so is pain. And so is, heartbreak and and uncertainty these are all parts of the human condition and people have without before we developed numbing agents which our modern society has really excelled at before we developed those we didn't have ways of numbing so we had to feel so recently we have seen this absolute proliferation in the last few decades it's kind of like the last four decades five decades you think of the whole of kind of human history and this little like the last second of time if it was like a day we've developed antidepressants which can be incredibly helpful but they're also about often about suppressing feelings for a lot of people that's how they experience it pharmaceuticals we've developed all sorts of different substances that we can numb our pain with that's just getting more extreme television gambling shopping i mean we just developed so many ways of of numbing and also like the the um the availability of kind of very high calorie very sugary foods that we can just numb our feelings with it as well so i think as soon as you recognize that and you you say to people the method of psychedelics is opposite to numbing by choosing to do this you are opening yourself up to extreme emotion that you may not have felt for a long time but the reason we ask you to do that is because we believe that the heal, you know, you've got to go through to, to, to heal, like you've got to feel it to heal it kind of thing. Then people would, would, would understand. And so I think in terms of indigenous wisdom around that idea of the sacred wound, I'm sure there is some, but it's almost like rather than pinpointing the specific um, traditions that have that message, it's more like that is just humanity. That is everything about what it is to be a human, the sacredness of our wounding, the learning that we go through from engaging with experiences that there is learning in our pain. I mean, it's the most basic rule of of being a human, but it's only the standpoint of the Western person right now or in the last few decades that we would even deviate from that fundamental truth of what it is to be alive because we have created this bizarre situation where we have virtual reality you know and all and all these numbing as i said before and technology where we can just like doom scroll ourselves into oblivion and avoid the pain of the thing that we've just gone through because we are just going to like take this take that look at this do this and and refuse to feel so there's a a psychosomatic element here when we think about shamanic approach to medicine which is that very often when when the shamans go on their whether plant medicine or shaker-based journeys into the the spirit realm, they find their companion there. Very often they find that the illness in the person is in fact part of their lifestyle. It's something that's happened to them. It's something that they're doing. It's one of their relationships that's not working. And that's the information that they bring back rather than some sort of physical treatment that needs to take place. 
uh, I can't help feeling that 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 mind body connection is very very important, and I'm I'm really hoping that with the podcast we can open up the sciences to finding ways to include that in uh, a, a physicalist and, and materialist approach to treatment. Mm. Now, Ros, many people out there considering this, as it gets more mainstream, there's a lot of press coverage, may have nothing to do with mental health or to do with the psychedelic space and may have never tried mind-altering substances, unlike us ravers who you know, <laughs> dabbled in our day. So they may quite rightly have some concerns about this unknown experience, particularly considering you know 60 years of really, really bad press for drugs and psychedelics that pretty much led to the closing down of the original studies at Harvard uh, you know, in the late 60s with Stan Grof. Now, Roz, you too hadn't experienced these psychedelic compounds at the time when you were invited to join Professor Nart and, and Robin Hart Harris that for that first PSYDEP study at Imperial. And before all this research became so well known and, and talk about due diligence, you went off and you did an ayahuasca retreat, talk about inception of fire. <laughs> so you could really empathize with these uh, participants that you were going to be assisting in these sessions at Imperial College Hospital. Tell us about your perspective and your fears beforehand and mm. how, how much that changed after your experience. I mean, a lot of it you've already touched on. Mm, so, yeah, interesting to reflect back on that time. And I think I would say that actually beforehand, well, when I first heard about it, it was through my best friend going to have an ayahuasca experience. And before she went, <clears throat> I was absolutely terrified because I'd Googled it and it found out all this terrible stuff about how dangerous it was. So I was really, I was begging her not to go. And then she came back and she'd had a really positive experience, but, you know, challenging, but helpful. And then when I went <clears throat> a few years later myself, I remember going in and being quite kind of having the perspective of, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and I want to know what it's like for the people that I'm going to be working with. And I was coming from you know, working in the NHS where I was the therapist and I was the expert and I was doing my, I was doing my research. And I remember turning up at the retreat and the the shaman kind of, you know, kind of, I was, you know, the, asking about our intentions and I was kind of like, well, I, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and I just want to know. And I remember him kind of looking at me like, right then, nice, nice. Let's see how that turns out for you. <laughs> and I got an absolute pummeling. I got an app absolute pummeling it was like you know the the ego of that the kind of the arrogance of that perspective of like was absolutely um yeah I, I was beaten up by mother ayahuasca was how it how it you know what it felt like it was really hard and when I say beaten up I mean it was like it felt physically painful so it was incredibly challenging but I think it's testament to the power of these these ways that I still you know, not only went back for more experiences, but also still wanted to work in this way. And I think it's because I needed that. I need, you know, I needed to have an experience of, of humility and humbling. I remember I was so massively humbled by it. Of, and the other thing was that when I looked back on it later, I realized that because um because I did have some really terrifying experience with psychedelics, it prepared me for the kind of places that people can go go to. And if I hadn't seen those places and I'd had lots of lovely experiences, then the therapy model I developed would have been so much 
more shallow and so much smaller and so much more kind of, you know, oh yeah, you come in, you have your, you visit God and then you go home again. But because I knew what was it, it was like from firsthand experience to go in, be beaten up for six hours, be on your knees and needing support, I was like, okay, well, we need to, we need to build some cushioning into this experience and we need to build integration communities and we need to make sure there's two therapists and lovely music and we need to make sure we can hold their hand because when I was there being beaten out, I remember just thinking, I just need someone to come and sit by me. Because the other thing that then happened on the second experience was that I died. And often in psychedelic experiences, you feel that you die because your ego is dying, but it feels like you're dying. And no one had really prepared me for that. And when you go through that kind of ego death, you really need forewarning that you're not actually dying because otherwise you think you are actually dying. So I thought I was actually physically dying. And I just remember thinking, I just need someone to come and hold my hand and like tell me if I'm breathing or not, because I feel like I'm not breathing. And because it was an ayahuasca retreat that, that without lots of support, those people weren't available. So I would say my fears going in were so much, my fear going in the first time were, were so much, um, I, I was very idealistic and I didn't have enough fear about it. And then coming out of it, I had a lot more fear. Not that I thought it was dangerous because actually I felt really good afterwards. I had lots of insights and I definitely learned as a person. And I deepened various parts of my life and had lots of kind of, you know, pearls that I that I planted and still growing those pearl trees now for sure. And I would never change, you know, having been there, but but I realized that you need a hand to hold that's just there for you. And I still kind of hold to that, that if you are doing one of these experiences, even if it's on a retreat with lots of people, you need to check out with people beforehand. If I need help, can, can I ask for it? And is someone going to come and sit by me? Because some places have a different perspective. They're like, no, no, you know, you do it, do it on your own. Some people believe in that. For me, I think, if we've had any experiences of trauma as children where we weren't taken care of by our parents, any experiences of abandonment or neglect in our lives, then if we're taken back to that sense of huge vulnerability and shame and pain, we we really need a reparative experience of a, of a boundaried, healthy adult that can give us their hand for as long as we need. And that is hugely healing. So yeah, check out whether you can have your hand held if you need it, I would say is my top tip for people. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned that ego dissolution and 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 ego death. And and I wonder if you weren't actually being beaten up by your ego, desperately yes. terrified yes. to let yes. go that it actually Absolutely. wasn't the ayahuasca. <laughs> it was your ego going, oh my God, oh my God. And beating yourself up, saying, I need this ego in order to stay alive. And actually, the beating up is this ego who literally does not want to accept that it's not fundamental to survival. Absolutely. I mean, yes, I'm glad you said that. That's ex I think it's exactly what was happening. It felt like an external thing, but it was it was absolutely my resistance, my refusal to let go. Um, yeah, that was doing the, the doing the punches. It's a difficult one, isn't it? I think that's a very good bit of advice about the hand-holding for anyone interested in going out and doing this. Now, an interesting note that you've made in the past, you mentioned it already, um, is, and it got reported in the press as well, that, that participants reported having a brain reset mm -hmm. in those original studies. 
And this went on to condition a lot of the expectations of later participants who were really excited and and might have gone in there with this expectation and were disappointed not to have what they had imagined as a brain reset. Now, having witnessed so many sessions now and the integrations that you're you're promoting, do you think it's a good phrase to describe why the therapy works? And how do we now get around these issues of expectations about what this journey is going to be like and what it's going to do? Yeah, thank you for asking that. It's really, really important. The brain reset analogy is is has proved to be incredibly unhelpful. We we wish that we've never. I mean, there are a couple of participants that said, you know, my brain was defragged, my brain was reset, and it's such a powerful idea and so seductive to the Western mindset of wanting kind of immediate change that those 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 you know quotes that we reported kind of really took hold, and then we regretted it because. Yeah, lots of people came in expecting the reset and not getting it. And I think that it's such an unhelpful idea because it's this passive idea that something just happens. And yeah, sometimes people do feel like, you know, something is kind of working on them in the session. But in order for that sense of something happening on the day that feels like a kind of healing process, for that to make people's lives any way different and to really bring long-term change they always have to do lots of work. There's no avoiding that at all. So all the people that did, you know, the people that have said that they had a kind of brain reset, when you actually ask them, and then what did you do? They're like, well, I changed this and I changed that. And I started, you know, the life path changes in some kind of way. So agency, intention is fundamental. Yes, absolutely. And commitment to a process. So but as you say, because they're not taking like a daily medication, it's like you need to do your daily work, your self-work as if it is a kind of, you know, medication. So whether that is, you know, whatever that looks like, however you're going to connect yourself, other people in the world around you, it needs to be daily, really, in order for it to be the connectedness to be maintained. Need so, so much discipline for that. I, I I worry about discipline in general, particularly with all these distractions and these these um uh do, you know to these um uh, coping mechanisms you were speaking about. You know, I just wonder how many of us have really got the metal that we need to just really discipline like that without it becoming some sort of military, you know, yes. order based thing. Yes. That, that was one of the reasons for the integration community, the ASO integration community, I think because um, by by having a 12-month process that you're paying for, it's, you know, you're taking a year out to really focus on it. And you kind of, you know, we say to people, like, do this when you're ready to actually practice this regularly and commit to, you know, you kind of commit to a weekly live session, but daily journaling, even if it's just five minutes taking a little bit of time to record your process and have that look at yourself, you know, check in with yourself. How am I doing? Am I slipping back here? What's got, am I still open? How am I closing up? How am I, how am I being generous to myself, to others, to nature at the moment? You know, so. And maybe yeah, the, the brain seeds the reset would make it, give you the temptation to go off and take another psychedelic as well, thinking, oh, well, I'll just take it again and, and it'll reset me again. Or, you know, presumably that's not encouraged. Well, I think that, so I like thinking about it in terms of like cycles of light and dark. So like in our hemisphere, we have kind of like, you know, a dark half and a light half of the year. So think about like, we have the four seasons, you know, in the UK, we have the spring, summer, autumn and winter. So if you think about 
having a psychedelic experience and say that that brings you into like you know the joy of spring you know wow the greenery you know you feel that wonderful sense of like you know the birds are singing and then you might feel good for a few months you know you're going into your summer you're changing things things are thriving and you kind of go into your autumn that the afterglow is fading you're starting to feel like things are a bit harder there's a bit more rumination and then you go into winter the depression comes back again I would say give yourself that cycle so that you have the the low mood for a few months so that you can feel it and you know what that darkness is like because there's so much learning that also comes from allowing that and then maybe you know if depending on the context if I would say if you're in a context where you can have a follow-up experience doing it once a year you know so that you get those those kind of psychological seasons rather than take a psychedelic keep myself in summer as soon as it starts to fade another psychedelic experience then you're never getting the learning of the processes of like light and dark that we need that's human nature and the laws of nature too another word here that's been uh, reported is the mystical experience um this sense of oneness with the universe you mentioned the oneness with nature experiencing a sort of ontology or this sort of reason this this sense of feeling that that, that the universe in you within it exists for a reason how important do you think the mystical experience is to the efficacy of this treatment particularly in light of these attempts by pharmaceutical companies to synthesize non-state altering versions of these compounds which me and david luke had a had a, a good laugh about in our altered states episode for anyone interested in altered states the sort of non-psychedelic psychedelic yes is some level of mystical experience important for shifting these conditions in your experience yeah i think we had a quite a lot of people that had more of a kind of psychodynamic experience where they you know didn't go into the kind of more mystical places in the experience, it was more about dealing with things from their childhood or difficult relationships and trauma. And they still had, you know, a lot of benefits. But I think the thing that lasts, the thing that the thing that really, the thing that really brings transformation is an altered worldview about, as you say, kind of who you are in the world. So whether if you go through the kind of emotional processing of dealing with shame and pain from your childhood and you have a recognition that actually you're a good person that is a huge revelation to have and that can change your life going forward but those kind of revelations i find tend to erode over time because the shame kind of rises up again so you can feel for a while like i'm a good person and then something else happens and the defenses kind of come back up again but when people have the realization that they are that there is something bigger, that they have a place in a web that has, you know, that it's kind of like runs on love or something, like, you know, that there is a kind of source of universal love in the world. That and a non-separation, perhaps. Yes, and, an, and a non-separation from it being part of it, being at one with everything, everything being the same, the same kind of made of the same material, as it were, like an energetic linking that we're all part of. When people have those kind of realizations, they feel it feels like that stays, even when people can't feel it anymore, and they they go back to feeling quite low. The 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 intellectual understanding that actually life is not as they imagined it, and that actually they have a new belief, which is that they are part of a 
meaningful universe that isn't just cruel but actually is about is 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 wondrous and beautiful and full of love even if they can't feel it anymore they can kind of remember that they saw it and I think it can help crucially connect them with other people that had the same revelation because we're we live in quite a um it's quite what's the word when it's not spiritual uh materialistic um, yeah and um i can't think of the there's another word but yeah we live in a materialistic secular kind of culture in in certainly in the uk but in a lot of the western world and so in a way our religion is kind of consumerism really now and kind of competition and getting ahead and individualism but when people have this glimpse into collaboration unity sacredness love equality all of the hippie stuff you know all of that stuff it connects them with other people with the same worldview and so suddenly people feel part of a tribe and if they can find other people that have glimpsed the same thing then it doesn't matter how much you're suffering with whatever's going on in your life or with you know mental health difficulties that can keep you going that even when you can't find the faith that that's true in yourself hearing it from other people can help you have hope and can really change people's sense of meaning and purpose in the world because also when you know that um it's not just a kind of cruel pointless universe that's all about you trying to be better than other people and if you fail at it then you're just a failure when you feel like um it's it's a kind of creative unified web where the flourishing of one is the flourishing of all and the flourishing of your neighbor is the flourishing of you, which is what happens when you're all unified in a web. It makes you want to help other people. So rather than being competition to other people, it makes you want to actually collaborate and help them. So when people are really depressed, probably one of the only ways I think people can find meaning is through helping other people. Because when you're really cut off from being able to like give yourself something most people can give something to another and seeing that is like I was saying before about, you know, the, the joys of, of kind of reciprocal giving. Hacking your think... dopamine system. And yeah. equally listeners, it's not to undermine those, those studies of, you know, de-psychedelized um, pharmaceuticals. You know, we really don't know how the unconscious mind yeah. works, uh, which is something we're looking into quite deeply on the show for anyone who wants to go back to our collective unconscious episodes and, and all of the other psychology episodes actually, so we don't know they, those those are those would there may be changes happening at an unconscious level too in the same way that we don't really understand how psychedelic experiences work. Um, so it's not to undermine that research and valid research because it may open up these two yes. people who might have been screened out from these much more intense experiences. Yes, yes, absolutely. Actually, brings us on to something you've been mentioning throughout. Actually, Ros, this that no one is really claiming that these journeys are positive always. They can be, um, and that nobody's having any bad trips. In fact, to be sure, that taking the adverse effects are being taken seriously. The philosopher Jules Evans is currently spearheading a new study looking at the adverse effects. Uh, with David Luke, our previous uh, guest uh, on the Altered States episode at University of Greenwich. So listeners, I will link that in the show notes once the research comes out, but I will in the meantime be putting a link to participate in it because they are looking for people who've had these adverse experiences for their study. But on this point, Roz, you've made the valid point that in some sense having a bad trip 
is having a good trip because you're going down into that deepest, darkest place. You're facing the the, the murky shadows. Um, tell us how you help participants confront these. I mean, you've spoken about this wonderful image of diving down. Mm. Is that the best way to transform them with an image, with a, with a, it seems that we're story beings. In some sense, if you storify and embodify something, it takes a lot of the intellectual fear out of it, doesn't it? Mm, yes. I think, yeah, the visualization, the pearl dye visualization really prepares people for this idea of like, mm, colorful fish and nice, pretty things. Mm, maybe I'm not going to head there. I'm going to go down to the murky waters. I'm going to choose, choose to go there. And I think by having that practicing that intention it doesn't mean that you're more likely to go there but it means you're willing to go there if, if that's where the trip takes you so I don't think that preparing people with the pearl dive um makes people any more likely to have difficult experiences in fact I think what we found is based on the advice of Bill Richards who's a he's been doing this for many years from Johns Hopkins University he's yeah he was doing this in the 60s He's, you know, always said to us in the preparation, make sure you ask people, what are the things that you don't want to see? What are the things you're most afraid of facing? Because if you talk to them about those scenarios first, in his experience, he said they're kind of less likely to come up. So if you say to people, you know, like, what's the one thing that you definitely, definitely don't want to, to happen? Then he felt like it was kind of clearing, clearing that so that rather than resisting it, you were kind of processing it in advance. So I think that is really helpful, like getting that sense of really talking through all the things that you don't want to see. What are the skeletons in your closet that you don't want to look at? Talk about them, maybe even tell someone if you can, you know, to get used to that that process of de-shaming and de-stigmatizing your own past and your own self. But then if people do have a, a very bad experience, then it it can be helpful, but it can also be unhelpful if people aren't properly supported through it. So I remember one of the most profound stories I was ever told was someone who'd been in a trial at um in a trial in Wisconsin, um, at the University of Wisconsin. And he'd been in one of the dose finding studies trying to work out the optimum dose of psilocybin for trials. And so he'd been given the highest dose ever given to anyone because he's a very big guy. And they thought it was based on on kind of muscle, you know, on kind of body mass. So he had something like 50 milligrams and then 60 milligrams and then like 70 milligrams the next time, just huge, huge doses. And he had an experience of complete hell. He described it was absolutely terrifying. And he also felt like he had become psychotic and lost his mind. And he said at one point, he described the way his guides supported him. And that he really described that the way they supported him was so skilled that it prevented him from having negative after effects and actually allowed him to benefit from it. Because what they did was when he um, he just kind of said, like, he was like sitting on the floor, like digging through doom, like it was like all the misery of the world was there and he was just kind of digging. And he was kind of sitting there saying, like, I just wanted to stop. I'm just like, and he remembers the guide putting a hand on his his shoulder and just go, go deeper. So he's like, I can't go any deeper. It's just unbearable. And she's like, great, you're doing brilliantly. Keep going. It's like that curiosity of like, you're in hell. Wow. What an ex like, what does hell look like? You know, how can you be curious about this experience you're having, which is going to end? It's transitory. We're here with you. 
this is an opportunity for you to really explore something that you don't normally get to explore and you be curious about what it feels like to experience being in hell for a while and having that attitude of curiosity rather than panic really changes things so i'd say curiosity is the is the key word for a for a bad trip the the second part of his trip was that he then when he felt like he was losing his mind he said to them you know you need to get the psych ward to come and send a chair i need a chair a wheelchair to sit in and you need to take me to the psych ward and the guy there were two of the guys the other guide said something along the lines of like he was called steve this guy he wouldn't mind me using his name he's you know talks about this in conferences he he said um the guide said steve hey congratulations you've done so well you've got to the point of full complete you know you've lost your mind a a total abandon like well done we are here with you we're so proud of you you don't need to go to the psych ward but like wow we are so proud well done so i think that feel of like being being confident about it trusting that people are going to come through the other side and being able to be curious and almost celebratory about it and celebratory about people's courage in going there not about the fact that they're having a horrible time but celebrating their courage staying with them in compassion compassion curiosity and courage those three words i think is what gonna is is what's gonna help people in those experiences so Roz, we are coming to the end of our time together. I did want to speak to you about the evidence from the studies about increased flexibility in the brain because we're big on neuroscience and this, but we don't have time for that. So I'm going to um, link that that research in the show notes so you can go off and check that interesting uh, result there um, about uh, brain flexibility, which I wanted to find out exactly what that means. But I'll link that in the show notes. So Roz, really, the... I just want to wrap this up. So listeners, both those interested in the therapy and interested in potentially becoming therapists themselves, like what is the status of the legalizing of this therapy uh, and rolling it out, uh, whether on health services or privately, which countries have already done this and changed the law? And and how long will listeners have to wait until they can get these treatments in their hospitals? What's, what's the situation and how long is it going to take? difficult to know about how long it'll be until it's kind of available in you know hospitals in the UK um in America um people can get ketamine therapy already legally although ketamine works in a slightly different way um but some states have made it legal and some states have decriminalized it so you can get for example in Oregon um you can get psychedelic therapy now it's become a state that's it's legalized it um or maybe decriminalized but anyway it's very accessible um it's it's there are retreat centers in places like jamaica and the netherlands and some other places where it's it's legal like yeah there's funny little kind of loopholes with various places where it's legal but essentially um it's it's still very difficult to access and there is yeah there's no kind of body that's regulating anything or organizing anything i mean in for ayahuasca it's um very very widely used in peru and also brazil and there's probably more of a sense of um you know there are some very well established shamanic 
healing centers where they have very experienced shamans that have been working for a very long time in a long lineage of healers. So I think probably they're some of the most kind of well established and in a way safe. Well, with places. your focus on safety, Roz, and integration, I just, if I'm going to link any of these places, I want to be places that you recommend from the process, but from the point of view, most of all, of safety, both ethically. Uh, and and in terms of the safety of the substances, but also in terms of making sure that the support is required. So, um, listeners, I will be linking some of those recommendations if Ros feels safe enough to do that. What about timelines, Ros? Are we talking about five years, ten years? I mean, the the, the results are so positive. There is a little resistance, but I think, given how pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical investors are coming on board so fast i don't think it's going to be too long since till the laws change am i being overly enthusiastic i suppose it just all depends i mean we have such a ridiculous political system where you know kind of short-term vote winning it seems to you know it just depends on what happens with our political landscape and so much can change with with you know who's holding who's holding the power so it's kind of difficult to predict but i would say if the mental health crisis continues to get worse and if our healthcare systems continue to kind of crumble, then we are going to be desperately looking for new solutions. So I would say it's probably more like five years than 10 years. But again, depends. Is there on... a lobby? Is there, a, is there an important lobby starting to be built among the psychedelic community to try and actually get laws changed also for the private sector? Because if 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 it's going to be harder to roll these out on national health systems, presumably if the law can be changed to allow the private sector to be regulated properly mm -hmm. on this. Yes, there was there was a there was a kind of lobby group linked to um to a political party and linked to a particular politician who then later had some rather unsavory kind of um revelations revealed about various things so i'd say at the moment we don't really have a kind of I, I, there's nothing that i would want to recommend that people really kind of get behind because unfortunately the one kind of lobbying group we did have was spearheaded by an individual that you know i think it's had, had vested interests yeah as so often as so often and perhaps in some sense uh, these community groups that are doing Little Farmer, I believe there's one called Little Farmer, yeah. um, need to be the ones to be to be making these moves so that people can really see that it's coming from a place of uh, the right objectives rather than pure financial interest. Well, yes. listen, Roz, you've given us such a deep insight today. I'm so grateful. It was exactly what I wanted to offer the listeners was a real clear image and vision of how this can be done, how it can be done properly and where people can find it, if not immediately, then in the next few years. Thank you so, so much, Rosalind Watts. Thank you so much, Freddie. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>